Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for bringing that prayer topic up, Nick. Please keep praying uh, each day as we move forward uh, for an end to trafficking. It's such a horrific thing. And the most useful thing we can do is pray. If we're asking God to intervene, he will. So please, please keep praying. Well, welcome. My name is Andy. I'm a pastor here. It's a delight to be the pastor here. Thank you for coming. I want you to know that you are loved and that you matter. You're loved by God and you matter to him in his plans for this world. Uh, we would like to show you that you matter as well. So if we haven't had a chance to meet you yet, come and say hello after the service. We also have connection cards. When I first became a Christian, it was the best news ever. I was a drug addict before knowing Christ. I had so many issues. Um, I was worse than North Korea. Um, <laughs> oh, so I never should make jokes that just pop into the head. Uh, uh, oh, Lord, let that be the only one. Uh, I had so many issues, and I had no idea who God was. And then I found out he loved me. Not only that he loved me, but he could change me. And I remember thinking, I have got to tell this to everyone. I was really annoying. But I just really wanted to share that good, good, good news to let people know who God is, who he showed himself to be through Jesus and the new life we can have through him. But as weeks became uh, months and months became years, life happens. Different stuff crowds in. And you kind of forget that the good news kind of becomes pretty good news. It's not as much life-changing good news as we had hoped it to be. Uh, we're in a teaching series in Philippians. This is a book which the Apostle Paul has written. He is in jail. He's writing to a small church which he planted. And he's saying to them, thank you for your partnership in sharing the good news of Jesus. And from prison, he's also writing to them to encourage and grow them in their faith. And he is able to have joy because the good news of God is still being preached. We found out last week that even in the midst of persecution, God does not let that stop his message of love from going out. Even in the midst of persecution, God is committed to honoring his son, Jesus. And so Paul has got a lot of joy as he is writing to the church in Philippi. And you'd thought he wouldn't have. But he's saying, no matter what happens on the outside with persecution, God will make it grow. Then he says, but. But please live a life worthy of the gospel. So yes, God uses it if it comes from outside the persecution. Please don't mess it up within yourselves on the inside. We found out the end of uh, chapter one, you can catch that online, that he says, live lives worthy of the gospel. And he says, be unified. For I read the text, let's bow our heads as I pray. Jesus, through your death on the cross, you have made the way for us to enter that eternal love relationship with you. That love relationship that has existed before creation and will continue for eternity. 
that loving union of three with you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. This is good news, and it is infinitely precious. Help us to partner with you as you transform each one of us and make us into your representatives here on earth. Help us to understand this text so we may live a life worthy of the good news of your love, that we may be unified. In Jesus' name, amen. So I found the magic of Google. I went to school 20 years ago, and I used to have to go to libraries, spend hours looking at books, and since uh, teaching more regularly, it's a gift for me, so thank you. Wow, Google is good. You can. <laughs> Why didn't I go to school in this day and age? Um, it, you get so much information really quickly. Not all of it is good, but I was preparing for the message, and Paul's saying, be unified. And as we speak to a local church about being unified, the opposite of that is a church that splits. So quick type into Google, what causes church to split? Sadly, a lot of information is there. Uh, one thing that I found was slightly humorous, only in its context, was when churches submitted their own uh, things that are caused big arguments. And they were submitting them in humility, saying, oh, we messed up. But this is one of the things that we fought about. Uh, it's really easy, you see, from these churches, how you take your eyes off the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. The main thing is love. The main thing is the gospel. So here are some of them that different church people submitted had caused big arguments. First one, a dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. Call me old-fashioned, Greg, but I prefer you with your clothes on. Oh, it's happened again. Sorry. <laughs> Number two, an argument in church because someone, and woe betide this person, used cranberry grape juice mix for communion instead of just grape juice. Third one, a significant dispute over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I see a theme here. You are always very well dressed, Greg. Thank you. An argument over whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. <laughs> a disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing for a church social. One of my favorites here. Uh, a church uh, argument erupted when one church member deliberately hid the church vacuum cleaner from some other church members. And they were furious about it. <laughs> and finally, I wish I'd made this one up. I haven't. A big church fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. Whew. I at least wish I'd been there when they took the picture. <laughs> uh, I realized in the midst of my research, one common thread through everything. The number one factor in church arguments, the number one factor in church splits. Can you guess what it is? Call out, not everyone at once. People. <laughs> Call me Einstein. Uh, it's the same with every argument in a marriage, every argument in a home, every argument at Thanksgiving. People 
being people. We just can't help ourselves. We like to make a mountain out of a molehill when someone's selfishness impacts us. And we want people to make a molehill out of our mountain when our selfishness impacts other people. So as I read the text for today, it's Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. If you take time now, just open up your Bibles. I've yet to figure out a way to get this uh, text small enough to go on the screen. So apologies. I'll read slowly. So open up your Bibles or get your apps out. I'll read to verse 1, chapter 2. So listen out Paul's counsel on how to be unified. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. As a husband, I am most content when Shelley and I are unified. As a father, I am really content when my kids are unified. Uh, Whenever you're preparing for a message, God gives you lots of examples in the week before, which I'm not going to go into. Uh, I am least content when there are arguments. Unity in my home gives me great contentment and joy. But the reality of life, the reality of family life, is that unity is a lot less prominent than we'd want it to be. Even in the most favorable of situations, it is two sinners raising little sinners. There are lots and lots and lots of pressures and opportunities which can cause one person to act selfishly and for the peace and contentment and unity to be shattered. Personally, I'm convinced that I could live a lot more like the transformed new creation Christ has made me to be in solitary confinement. (laughs) But without people, I'd have no joy. The Apostle Paul is no different. Found out he gets great joy from the church in Philippi. Found out in chapter 1, like a loving father, he holds them in his heart. He even gets joy in the midst of suffering in prison because of gospel partnership. He even gets joy knowing that God is committed to advancing the gospel and honoring Christ. And Paul, in today's text, wants the Philippians to make his joy complete by being unified 
without division, without envy, without conceit. Now, saying that Paul wants his joy to be made complete is not really accurate. If you look at verse, uh, which one is it? I think it's verse 2. Complete my joy. That's actually in the imperative. That's a command. He's saying, complete my joy. He is ordering it. And how are they to do this? By being of the same mind, which looks like having the same love, being in full accord. And he repeats it again, being of one mind. So first point from today's message is be unified. Now he actually says, hey, make my joy complete. It's actually a polite way of saying, hey, be unified. He's not really greedy when it comes to joy. He wants them to be unified. So Paul repeats it. He says, uh, being of the same mind, and then of one mind at the end. When there's repetition, it typically means that God has not been careless when he's inspired someone to write. It means that he wants to be clear. So repeating the word mind here emphasizes that unity is the main point and that having the same love and being of one accord are the ways to achieve and maintain unity. If you look at verse 2, probably a better way to say it that we would understand today is be unified by having the same love and not fighting. Be unified. They're unified to have the same love. It doesn't mean they've all got the same haircut. It doesn't mean they all agree with the same thing. God loves diversity. We see that in all of creation. But he's saying have the same love. This means valuing the same priorities. It's not difficult. Great commandment, love God. Second one's like it, love people. And the great uh, commission is sharing the gospel of Jesus so that others can become more like him. So to be unified by having the same love and valuing the same priorities. They are to avoid infighting, saying there's going to be enough persecution from outside sources. Don't create stuff inside the church. And he's writing to all of them. Remember at the beginning he says to the saints in Philippi. This is not just to the leaders of the church. He's saying to everyone, God views you as a saint. Now each one of you has a responsibility to be unified. Yes, each one of you is loved. Each one of you matters. At the same time, we have a responsibility to be unified. It's the same command. So putting the opening two verses in more contemporary language would be verse 1. It kind of says any. It means even if you have a little bit. And he talks through four different things. The way to summarize that would be, call yourself a Christian. Call yourself a Christian. Verse 2, you must be unified. Keep the main thing the main thing. And don't fight over little things. Be unified. And Paul doesn't leave them without help applying this command to be unified. He then goes on to explain it in practical, everyday ways. So he's going to state what to avoid, the unity killer. And then he explains what to pursue, the unity keeper. So what to avoid, the unity killer. Here it is, verse 3. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. 
So the second point, the first point was be unified. The second point is conceit, the unity killer. Conceit is the opposite of humility. Uh, if you look conceit up in a dictionary, not urban dictionary, uh, you'll see that it says having high self-regard. We have been conceited when we think that we're better than others. And we show this practically when we put our needs above someone else's. Now here the word translated actually means emptiness. So Paul is saying when you feel empty, and it leads you to wanting something, to snatch at something. So if we're empty, we think, if I get that, if I get my own way, I'm going to be content, I'm going to be happy. And so conceit, that emptiness, always leads to rivalry. Uh, we go after the thing that we want to fill us. If someone else is competition for that thing, it's fair game to push them out of the way. Whether it's our personal preferences, uh, whether it's uh, something that we think is unfair that someone else is getting. Rivalry just rears its ugly head all the time. If you have children, you will see it when the last blue raspberry popsicle is in the freezer and is taken. <laughs> uh, it does not need to be taught. Put two toddlers in a room with a cupcake in the middle and watch to see what happens. Rivalry comes really naturally to us. It's our default mindset. Rivalry rears its ugly head in traffic. We've got to get that one car ahead so we can wait at the red light first. <laughs> Rivalry is on display at Halloween as I make my kids run really fast between house to house. True story, sadly. It's going to be my late-night snacks for a few months, so it's important. Uh, rivalry happens if someone gets all the credit for something that we did, whether at school or at work. And in families, you'll often hear it in the phrase, that's not fair. Uh, I grew up as one of three. My older sister and I are really close in age. I, my poor parents, the amount of times we're in competition saying, that's not fair. It was largely my sister, I was very mature. Uh, <laughs> we were not concerned with fairness. So, like, oh, we are really just. Mum, I think you've done an injustice here. We're just greedy. It's not fair, they had this. That's not fair, they had that. Uh, you hear that all the time. Now, we see that rivalry uh, just rears its ugly head everywhere. We can also see, although it was funny at the beginning, that it can rear its ugly head in churches. Fighting over things that are not the main thing. Now, they're quite funny to read, funny to laugh at. The reality is, when we fight inside a church, it's tragic. People outside the church look at us fighting inside the church, and they say, you're, you're no different. You're just after yourselves. God isn't real. And to Christians impacted by rivalry, it hurts like hell. And sometimes we might wonder, is God truly real? How could he let this happen among his children? Why isn't he doing something about it? Well, he is here in his word, the Bible, through a direct command to be unified, to avoid conceit, 
amongst yourselves because that leads to rivalry. Now, the command is through Paul to the church in Philippi, and then from the church in Philippi to us here in Wheaton. We've learned that God views us as saints, so how do we live like saints? So the third point is humility, the unity keeper. First point is be unified. Then we looked at conceit, the unity killer, because it leads to rivalry. Humility is the unity keeper. Let's read verses 3 and 4 to you. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Ta-da! It's not rocket science, although I sometimes make it rocket science. It's not beyond our grasp. It's not out of our reach. Here it is again. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Like the second commandment. Love others like you'd love yourself. And here it is in a practical situation. When we're unified, we are humble. When we are humble, we are unified. A healthy church is one full of humble people who look to meet the needs of others. We are humble when we recognize that we have a predisposition for rivalry that we want to meet our own temporary needs. And it's typically at the expense of others, and it hurts them, and it typically ends up hurting us. Now, if you've been on a plane journey, uh, forgive me if you just traveled in America, if you go on a plane journey from, let's say, to Texas, you have to get on the plane if you don't want to be a very long drive. If you've been on a plane journey, they try and comfort you in case the plane is going to crash. And they do it in a very cheerful voice. Are you ready? I'm going to comfort you. Uh, They say to this, uh, if, what they're trying to say, (laughs) they're trying to say the plane is going to crash and I'm trying not to panic. But they say, if we experience a sudden drop in cabin pressure, uh, your oxygen mask will fall from the compartment above. Make sure to put your oxygen mask on before helping others. This is good advice. Now, if you flew in the 80s or the 90s anywhere around Europe, it would have sounded like this. Make sure to put uh, your oxygen mask on before helping others. If you are smoking, please extinguish your cigarettes before putting your oxygen mask on. (laughs) I am not joking. Uh, Paul is giving good advice here too. When he's saying, look, not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Humility doesn't look like hating ourselves. doesn't say, pretend you have no needs. No. He's saying, look to others' interests as you would to your own. In other words, if there's a drop in cabin pressure, put your oxygen mask on as you have needs before you help someone else. However, this is what it doesn't look like. If we're on a plane and we see that a less able-bodied person is at a seat with more legroom. We do not throw a hissy fit berating the cabin crew for not being fair. What about me? 
Do you have any idea who I am? Do you have any idea who my father is? Behaving like this will make it very, very difficult to share the gospel with that cabin crew member later on on the flight. Paul's saying let's keep the main thing the main thing, the gospel, love, Jesus. Let's not fight over small things. Getting our own way does not always make us happier. Often wise, it makes things worse in relationships. And if we are being selfish, it's really, really difficult to convince others that the gospel is real. So the mark of a Christian is being humble and having awareness of others. The mark of someone who's probably not a Christian is an ongoing posture of arrogance and selfishness. I give you permission, if you see me ever coming up to teach, I am wearing a white suit. And I say, and now, and pyrotechnics come up. (laughs) And I produce a dove from my back pocket. Just do an intervention at the very least. So Paul gives them the perfect example to follow, saying, be unified. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Be unified if you're a Christian. And then he says this in verses 5 to 8. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, you're all saints because you're in Christ. Keep this in mind. Jesus, who, though he thought he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the main point of verses 1 to 11, looked at unity or be unified, then Uh, Conceit is the unity killer. Humility is the unity keeper. But if you could summarize 2, 1 to 11, it would be this. Pursue unity through Christ-like community. Christ-like humility, sorry. Pursue unity through Christ-like humility. Verse 1, call yourself a Christian. And in now verses 5 to 8, then be humble like Christ. Jesus is above all Things. Jesus is God. He is the highest high. He is king over all creation. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And yet from his throne room, he saw our need for forgiveness. He put our interests above his and became one of us. But not just one of us. He humbled himself to the point of being a servant. Think about that for a moment. From a king who gives all of the orders to a servant following orders. It would have been fully appropriate for Jesus to stay on his throne and receive all glory and honor and praise forever. Because he's the most honorable being, both inside and outside creation. And yet for our sakes, for our forgiveness, the king due the most honor, in humility died the most shameful and public of deaths. Jesus was motivated 
by love. Jesus was also motivated by trust in his Father. See that at Gethsemane? He's praying, please take this from me. He knows what's about to happen. He says, but your will be done. He knows that his Father, although the painful bit may come, ultimately will make it okay. So he willingly went from the highest high. That's way above just a mountaintop. That's beyond space. That's beyond our galaxy, universe, whatever order that goes in. Uh, outside space and time. And then he came to the lowest low. That's the furthest you can go. From the very highest high to the very lowest low, taking the curse our sins deserved. That, friends, is the length of God's love for you. That is the full measure of grace. Remember a couple of weeks ago, there's saving grace and there's empowering grace. Saving grace, God's love is huge. Bigger than anything you've ever seen before. And someone like Jesus, willingly being that loving, representing the love of God, the full measure of God's love, will be honored. Verses 9 and 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, if we're not humble, uh, we're not willing to show our love for others before, without putting their interests before ours. How can we possibly measure, convey the measure of God's love for them? How can we possibly convey grace which we have received? God knows our needs. He knew that Jesus ultimately deserves glory forever. And he ensures that that happened. Jesus didn't need to go after it because he knew God would do it. We often behave like two of the toddlers in a room and there's a cupcake there. And what we don't know is our Heavenly Father has just bought us a kingdom of cupcakes. But we run for that one and we punch and we scratch and we fight. Do you have any idea how good it will be to be with Christ forever. Any idea what it's going to be like to eternally worship him? Any idea what it's going to be like as we stand before him, as he is dripping with glory, and we're praising him with all of the heavenly host? Oh, my God. That is why Paul is able to say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. From the highest high back to us people here in this fallen world, with our propensity to turn from God and feel empty and act selfishly. What does pursuing Christ, sorry, pursuing unity through Christ-like humility look like? And to give you an example with my own kids, I have asked uh, the oldest one who this is about for permission. And she's asked me to change some words and some different things, so I'm going to do that now. Uh, 
This Easter was bitterly cold. Uh, we had the wise idea, or I had the wise idea, of doing an outside Easter egg hunt. Shelley, being the wise one of the two, made all the eggs and said, and now you can go out and do that with the kids. 36 colored eggs. Of those 36 colored eggs, one was twice as big as the others and was gold. Words of the wise, if you have three kids, do not have just one gold egg. <laughs> so I took them to a nearby nature reserve in St. Charles. It was brutal. I mean, I was seriously questioning the love of my kids. Like, do I love them enough to do this? As I was hiding Easter eggs all through this nature reserve. My kids were in the car, I'm now aware that's illegal, uh, staying warm and listening to the radio, but that's not the point of my message. <clears throat> anyway, they were crawling up the walls, and what I didn't do when I look back with 2010 vision, I didn't say, hey, here are the rules. Let's share. Sharing's fun. We can all have joy and be unified. Um, I said, hey, they're ready. And I hadn't even got to the car. Vroom, vroom, vroom. Three kids flying out with their baskets. One of my kids is older and faster and really good at finding things. She trailblazed, like trailblazed after them. Uh, it was ugly. I was trying to catch up with them. The wind's blowing my hearing aids. I am painfully cold. Uh, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth by the younger two. I'm trying to point out to where the other eggs are, and it's, it was horrible. And it went on for ages. And after about 45 minutes, I'd dropped all these eggs, like, up on tree branches. It was all within reach, under a bush, under some leaves here, uh, in the roots there. <sighs> Sorry. Um, Jamie was the most upset. He had the least amount. And so I said, Jamie, I know where the golden egg is. Now, I'd hidden it at the far end tree at the end. It was like the ta-da moment of their joy. Um, I said, Jamie, the golden egg is up in that tree, in that branch. Come on, let's run, let's run. And we're probably 200 yards away. And then Jessica walks up to the tree, takes the golden egg, puts it in a basket, and bedlam. <laughs> Absolute bedlam. If you'd walked past us at that point, we would not have looked like a pastor and his children <laughs> celebrating the resurrection. Uh, it looked like a sinner trying to raise little sinners, wishing he was as wise as his wife. But then grace happened, completely unexpected. Each of my kids uh, went different ways. <laughs> They were like physically ununified as well. They didn't like each other. Went to different places and started going through their eggs. Jessica had a lot. She opened up a couple. And when the hyper-focus had died down, she suddenly thought, I've got lots of eggs. And I don't need all these eggs. And she went to her brother and her sister. And she only kept three eggs herself. She gave them all to her brother and sister. I think she had found out that mummy and daddy had only put quarters in some of the eggs, so we were less generous than she was hoping. She even gave James the golden egg. And that is what humility looks like. Our natural predisposition is to go for something, to snatch at it. I mean, we've been telling them it's gonna make them happy. <laughs> Shame on me. <laughs> um, 
It was freezing. There's lots of pressure. There's lots of reasons to be miserable and selfish. I remember as I was just walking through, every curse word was coming into my head, and I was thinking, please don't come out my mouth. It was a stressful situation for everyone concerned. Grace looks like when God intervenes, the Holy Spirit living in Jessica, and says, hey, you're better than this. Share what I have. And there was unity. And there was relief. And there was joy. And it's the same in heaven when we live lives worthy of the gospel. Arguments will always happen in a church, just as they do in any family. But over time, listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and practicing humility, asking for forgiveness, we can have deeper unity and we will be unified. What's it look like in our lives this week? Now, I typically give one or two applications. They're simple. Uh, if it's a moral issue, I'll say, hey, apply this for the rest of your life. If it's less of a moral issue, I'll say, try this this week. Uh, try this this week. Uh, one for all of us. Next time we come to church, it's really easy just to be with ourselves and our friends and the people we know and not be thinking of the person whose first attempt at church it is or the person whose last attempt at church it is. I want us to be more others aware before, during, and after. The other application is some of us just need to be more others aware. Your project this week is to start noticing others, the needs of others. Pay attention to the people around us, people in our home, the people we work with, the people in supermarket queues. And in noticing them and paying attention to them, we can discern their needs and help meet them. Some of us need to repent how we viewed others as rivals. I don't know how you can fix that other than pray to God every single day, asking him to change you and asking him to reveal any ways where you can make amends. I'm going to ask the band to come on back. and We're going to do a response. As I was preparing this message, I was recalled a time a year to 18 months ago, and I had really, really, really bad depression. In the midst of severe depression, it's, you're suffering so much, you totally lose your view of everyone else. It's like someone sticks a needle in, and then you don't notice the rest of the body. What I'd like to say, this message of uh, notice others, I'm going to pray for healing for you. Whether it's a circumstantial depression, whether it's a biochemical depression, whether it's a spiritual depression, whether it's bipolar, uh, whether it's PTSD. I'm going to pray for God to heal you. I'm not going to ask you to write when there's no ink in the pen. But I would love for God to give you a renewed focus, for him to get rid of some of that mist that we feel when we're depressed. I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you that through Christ you've given us the perfect example. You've shown us the full measure of your love. Help us to live lives worthy of that love. Help us to be humble like you were. In Jesus' name, amen.